The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. And open uh, to Exodus 25 this morning. We had a blowout on the way to Children's Church. He's up and running, though. Uh, Exodus 25. Uh, and I told you last week that, um, that I was going to, with the Lord's help, um, finish out the book of Exodus in five weeks. Still trying to do that. And, uh, but I've had to make some adjustments. And uh, maybe not so much me as much as the, Lord, the, the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, if it were up to me, we would have been here probably till about one o'clock today. Uh, but the Spirit kept leading me and prompting me, and I have cut the sermon in half. Uh, I intended to, to take care of and look at all of the different furnishings and fixtures that were part of the tabernacle today and realized that was just too much. Uh, it was too much for our time. It was too much for you to absorb. And so we cut that in half. Uh, we're going to look at three or four of those today. We'll come back and look at three or four of those next week. And then, Lord willing, we will move on uh, to um, the golden calf, and then we'll finish out with the Lord's glory filling the tabernacle. And uh, that'll finish us up, hopefully, right before Thanksgiving. We're going to go into uh, then the Advent season, and we're going to, as we lead up to Christmas, we're going to look particularly at the Advent, uh, the coming of God as man and uh, prepare our hearts for uh, Christmas and what that means, that it doesn't just come and go as another holiday where we get swept up in the consumerism of our day. And um, anyway, I'm excited for this. So Exodus 25 is where we're going to be today. We're going to look at these furnishings and fixtures in the tabernacle. So before I read and talk and read and talk, um, let me just give you just a, a, a caution. There are lots of wrong ways to interpret the furnishings and all the things that go along with the tabernacle. And, and these have been, I mean, exhaustive. And let me just give you kind of a few. Uh, according to um, ancient Jewish philosopher, uh, the, the tabernacle's structure itself is representative of the universe. The seven branches in the lampstand equals the seven planets. The four basic elements used in its construction represent earth, air, fire, and water. The 12 stones on the priest's breastplate uh, are the 12 signs of the zodiac. Now, we could get lost in the details, or we could look at Scripture. There's lots of wrong ways that we could look at the things of the tabernacle. Uh, Origen claimed that uh, the gold represented faith, that silver represented the preached word, and that bronze represented patience. The only problem with that is, what do you base that on? I mean, a lot of these things you're, you're having, if you're going to make them represent other things, then you're going to have to sort of pull those out of the air somewhere. Others have, have looked at the, uh, the elements of the tabernacle and saw that the white linen, they say, represents the, the righteousness of Christ. And that the, the, the red ramskins, the, his, his suffering and his death on the cross... Uh, Gregory the Great said that the Ark of the Covenant was the church. It was a picture of the church. And because the Ark of the Covenant had four rings um, to slide the poles through to carry the Ark of the Covenant, that uh, that was representative of the fact that the church was to go into the four corners of the world equipped with the four Gospels. And that sounds great and spiritual. And some would say, that'll preach. The reality is, if you're going to preach that, you've got to twist and invent. And 
I don't want to be guilty of that as your pastor. Okay? Other C of connection to the incarnation of Christ. They look at the acacia wood. All throughout this, you're going to see that you're going to build this with acacia wood and cover it in gold and all these things. And they say the acacia wood, oh, that represents the incorruptibility of the humanity of Jesus Christ. That gold is his divinity. Therefore, the human nature of Christ and the, and the divine nature of Christ represents his dual nature as the God-man. Well, that sounds wonderful. It's just not in the Bible. And so what we don't want to do is, is read meaning into the text. Nor do we want to read ourselves into the text unnecessarily either. Um, here's what we're going to do. I'll, I'll make you this promise. We want to look to see how the Bible interprets the Bible. It's a great principle that all of us ought to wrap our minds around, that God is clear, that He is wise, that He is a God of common sense, and that he, where He writes something here, oftentimes He explains or comments on it somewhere else to help us understand what he means. He did this even on his, in his earthly ministry when he would tell these parables. And then his disciples, I can just picture them sitting by as Jesus telling these stories. And his disciples going, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand that. They get with Jesus and go, what were you talking about, Jesus? I didn't understand a bit of that. And Jesus would then explain to them what it meant. In the same way, the Bible does that all the way through. So we want to look to see how the Bible interprets the Bible. We're going to do that by looking to see how images or, or, or materials symbolize things all throughout the Bible. If they do, then we can, we can bring those in. Uh, or we're going to look to see if Scripture explicitly gives us clarity somewhere else on what we're looking at today. Sound good? All right. So here we go. I want to look at today, at least, Lord willing, with time, three of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. The first being the Ark of the Covenant. If you will, look with me at Exodus 25, and let's begin reading in verse 10. Follow along with me as I read. They, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its, its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub, of, of, um, make, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends." The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat, and with their wings, um, their, their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. 
There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So what I want to do is I want to read these sections that explain these furnishings, explain them a little further so you understand, and then at the end I'm going to give some applications. So the Ark of the Covenant, what is the Ark? Now, some people, the only thing they know about the Ark is, wasn't it in the Indiana Jones movie at one point? And that's about all they kind of know is they, they, uh, they look and they see, well, yeah, I think, uh, I think that was there. Well, the Ark is really just a, another word for a box. Um, it's a fairly uh, plain box except for some molding around the top and the fact that it is covered in gold. It was roughly about uh, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. Uh, it was covered with gold that was fit for a king. It, it says that it was pure gold refined to remove any impurities. And historians and archaeologists tell us that probably the way this was done, there was an ancient method where they would build a box of wood, and then rather than dipping the box into the gold, they would take sheets of this gold and nail these sheets of gold onto the box. So probably this is the way it was done. There were four feet at the bottom so that um, it set up off the dirt. They didn't want the, God didn't want the ark to sit in the dirt itself. It would sit above the earth. Um, Gold rings were connected to those feet. Uh, oftentimes we look at that, we say there's rings there for poles to go through, and maybe we picture those at the top corners, but they were actually at the feet on the bottom so that the poles, that were, which were also gold-covered, could be slid uh, through those poles and lifted up onto the priest's shoulders when they moved so that uh, the people, as they're traveling, they can see the ark lifted up above the heads of the people, above the heads of the priest. And if you, if you have seen anything in history, you understand that lots of times kings were carried that way. And so this was symbolically God saying, I am king of kings. And when they would travel, they'd carry him like this. Now, in the Bible, this wasn't always the case. The ark of the covenant was made so that it would be respected God said it is holy and, and, uh, and gave, gave instructions not to touch it at all. That's why these poles were there. They were to be permanently placed there, only carried by these poles, by the priests, when they traveled, when God led them somewhere else. But in 2 Samuel chapter 6, King David decided to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and rather than um, carry it by these poles the way God had instructed, he decided that he would load it onto an ox cart, and uh, just pull the thing up there. And uh, they're going along. One of the oxes, oxen stumbles, and it looks like the ark is going to come off of the cart. And Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark, probably good intentions, thinking, I, I don't want it to touch the ground. I know that's why the feet are there. And he reaches out, and he touches the, uh, the, uh, the side of the ark, and he's struck dead immediately. It speaks to the holiness of what we're doing here, what God was, was leading them to do. I remember I told you last week that um, the closer you got to the center uh, of the tabernacle, the m- more holier things got. Well, the, te- the, the Ark of the Covenant was to be located inside the, not just the holy place, but inside the holy of holies, the most holy place. And then it goes on and it says that on top of that, the box, the Ark itself, there was to be a lid and on this lid, there would be two cherubim that sat facing one another. 
Uh, the cherubim are, are not messengers as some other angels are. We read all through the New Testament and we see angels appearing and showing up and they're bringing messages to people. Uh, but these are not cherubim. These are other angels. Cherubim, uh, they don't leave God's presence. They stay in God's presence because their, their task, their job is to guard His holiness, to not permit anything unholy to enter into His presence. Um, they are uh, the palace guards for the King of Kings. They're not exactly the uh, little fat baby angels that are oftentimes pictured when you think of cherubs or cherubim. Um, these are warrior angels who have been charged with protecting the holiness there of God. Well, on this lid where these two cherubim sat facing one another, looking down, uh, the area above the cherubim is where the throne of God Himself was. Uh, This is where, and God said it here in in our passage, that in the area above the cherubim is where I will speak to you. And this is where God would dwell. God is saying, I want to dwell with you, built from this tabernacle. And He's saying, and here, this is where I will dwell. Now, do we believe that God dwells in houses made of hands? No. Does God have a body like you and I have? No. But God, for our sake, for their sake, makes Himself localized so that they might have the grace of knowing Him. He wants to be with His people. Psalm 99 verse 1 affirms this, that the cherubim, uh, that the space above was where the throne of God Himself was. Psalm 99 1 says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth quake. In 2 Kings 19 verse 15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone are all of the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And so this was a common belief, a common practice. God himself tells us that this is the area where I will dwell among you above the cherubim of this lid on this box. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary, said the Ark of the Covenant was an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality, a three-dimensional picture of a scene from heaven where God is surrounded by his holy angels. And this explains why, and I should have gotten you a picture of this. Maybe I can have that next week for you. But if you look at at, uh, renderings of the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, these cherubim, and and it explains it here, they're facing one another and their heads are down because they believe, the, the, the truth is that God is above. And so rather than looking up to God and staring on infinite holiness, they avert their gaze to not look directly on it. Inside the ark, uh, we learned in other parts of Scripture, the sample of manna was there, the uh, Aaron's staff that budded was there. But here we're told that they are to place inside the ark uh, the stone tablets of the covenant. Hence why it is called the ark of the covenant. Because the covenant is contained inside. It held the terms of the relationship between Israel and God. The ark in other places of Scripture is called the footstool of God. And this makes sense. If we, if we look at the space above the cherubim of the mercy seat, there's, is where God's throne is, then here on the ark itself, it's called His footstool. Psalm 132, verse 7, Let us go to His dwelling place. Let us worship at His footstool. They're talking about 
the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and take the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. What this means, though, is that if this is the footstool of God, God's throne being here, the footstool of God, that the, the tablets were under God's feet. And this created quite the problem for Israel. God was standing on the very things that they were to live up to, the terms of the relationship. And the reality is they couldn't live up to these. I mean, look at what we just, we've just come through several weeks back and looking at the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. All these things. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And if you look through Israel's history, they would be a people who habitually broke those commands. They made graven images. They neglected the Sabbath. They were thieves. All these things. And here God's standing. He's resting on. He's, he's over and above the, the terms of the contract, the relationship, if you will. But the, the, the great news is it's not a contract. But here are the terms, and they can't live up to them. And so if, if God is here, feet resting on these terms, they can't live up to them, then this creates quite the problem. What was in the box couldn't save them. It could only condemn them. Other religions uh, have also constructed boxes, and oftentimes they have brought relics and things that, that proved their, their worth in their eyes to their deity. Well, this is not the reality here. God is not saying, bring me something that's, that shows me that I should, I should accept you and I should, I should be kind to you. Instead, God's saying, here's what I'm giving you. The only problem is what God's giving them condemns them. Which is why this lid with the cherubim is often called the mercy seat. It's, it's the mercy seat because one day a year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in. He would first make sacrifice for himself and killing an animal and, and taking the animal's blood, but also sacrifice for the nation of Israel, for the sins that they had committed, for all the ways that they had not lived up to the things that were contained inside that box. And what the high priest would do is he would take the blood from those animals and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle this blood on the mercy seat. So that between God and them, they were covered with blood. Something had died in their place to make atonement so that their sins would be covered Philip Graham Ryken, again, in his commentary said, The location of the blood was significant. Above it was God in all His holiness. Underneath was the law that exposed Israel's sin. In between came the blood of the atoning sacrifice that covered transgression and turned away wrath, reconciling the people to God. The blood on the ark thus provided safety from judgment. When God came down to dwell with His people, He would not see the law that they had broken, first of all, but the saving blood of atoning sacrifice. The mercy seat was not their idea. It was God's. God had made a way for their sins to be covered, for them to be forgiven. So, 
first of all, there's the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to come back and give you some application at the end, but let's move on. Uh, Let's look at verses 23 through 30 uh, of Exodus 25 and look at the table for bread. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings of the four corners at its, at its four legs. And close to the frame of the ring shall lie as hold, close to the frame the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates. Uh, and dishes for incense and flagon and its flagons and bowls uh, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread uh, of the presence of the table before me regularly. Now, you can see as I read through these why uh, we're not going to take a lot of time to, to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through this because there's a lot of things here that are not really made for, to be applicable to us. We're not having to build these things and carry these things around. These are for the Israelites. But let's look here at the, the table for bread. What is this all about? Well, it's roughly the size of a coffee table. It's three feet long. It's 18 inches wide. It's a little over two feet tall. It's made of acacia wood covered with gold. It's located not in the Holy of Holies, but it's located in the holy place. So it's it's inside the tabernacle, but not inside the inside of the tabernacle, if you will. Uh, it, it held 12 loaves of sacred bread. You say, why is, there, why is there bread there brought into the holy place? Well, some have said, well, this must have been for God, for His sustenance. They're feeding God, if you will. But the reality is, God doesn't need to be fed. God's not man. He doesn't get hungry. His stomach never rumbles. Like maybe your neighbor's has already this morning. Uh, God doesn't need food to, to live. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, we're told, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Leviticus 24, though, gives us some clue as to why this bread is brought into the tabernacle. It was baked the, the day before the Sabbath of each week. And then on, on the Sabbath the priests would, would take this new bread that it was baked the night before, they would take it into the table of, uh, of bread, and they would eat the old bread, the bread that had been there all week, untouched by God because God didn't need it. The priests would eat the, the old bread, and then they would set the new bread out and repeat that process over again. Well, if the bread was not for God, then why is it there, Pastor? Right? Because God's not the needy one. We're the needy one. We're the ones who are utterly dependent on God for everything that we need. This would have been a constant reminder to the priests and to the entire nation of Israel that they were dependent on God to be their great provider. I mean, bread is, is a basic food, and without food we cannot survive. What did you think about? What did, what did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Matthew 6 11. Give us this day our daily 
bread, right? And, and this is a reminder that God is our provider. That each time the, the, the priests were, the, they went in and saw the table with that bread, and they were going in and out all week long. And every time they would go in and they would see that table of bread, it was a reminder to them that, hey, we are dependent on God. We need Him for everything. If He doesn't provide, then we are sunk. They would have been reminded of their daily need. They were also reminded that their needs were ever before God. That not only were they dependent on God to be their provider, but every time they would go into the tabernacle, they would see, here's this table. God has made a table in His presence and told us to put bread on it. What this tells us is that not only are we dependent on God, but God is concerned for our needs. That our needs are ever before Him. And to us, I'll give you more application at the end, but let me just go ahead and tell you this right now. What that means for us is that God can be trusted to be our provider right now. That everything we need comes from Him. The the Bible tells us that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of change. That God's good, that He's always good. That's why Christy can come and she can tell you how God, even in the midst of losing her husband of 34 years and and seeing her son-in-law deployed to Afghanistan and her her daughter with this chronic illness and, and her grandson with a broken leg and all these things that God is good even in the middle of that. And that God was faithful even in the middle of that. That my needs, your needs, are ever before God. Now, some people take this to an extreme and they, they, they think, well, then we are the center of this universe and it revolves around us. And God exists to be our genie in the sky and He serves us and meets our needs. Our needs are ever before Him. And if that's our attitude, we have a wrong attitude of God. God doesn't look to our needs and and provide for us because somehow He feels indebted to us. Instead, it speaks to His character that He is benevolent, that He is good. He doesn't have to, but He meets our needs and He can be trusted. This table of bread would also have been a reminder of the fellowship that they had with God. Not only that they, they look to God to provide everything they need, but, but er, also every week the Sabbath comes around and the priests go in and they eat this, this old bread and you think, well, oh, man, I wouldn't want to eat that old bread. It's been laying there for a week, you know. Out in the desert, I mean, it's, it's probably not very good bread. They got better bread at the steakhouse, right? But every time they would take these loaves of bread and they would eat these loaves of bread, they were reminded that in the ancient Eastern culture, to break bread with someone was so much more than just providing for your needs. To break bread with someone was to be invited into a relationship, was to sit down at a table with someone else, was was to scoot up in, in personal friendship and communion with someone. And every time they would eat this bread, they would be reminded that God had invited them into His home to eat a meal with them. They ate bread in God's presence, hence this is the bread of the presence. And then lastly for today, let's look at the golden lampstand. Verses 31 through 40. 
The Bible here tells us, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So with the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece, and, it, and with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain." So the golden lampstand is this last piece of furniture for today that we'll look at. Um, the tabernacle, if, if you'll remember my description to you last week, was four layers thick. This first layer was, was linen, and then there was this second layer of this goat's hair, which is this sturdy fabric that's still used today um, to, to make tents. Um, then there would be on top of that these ram skins. Uh, and then on top of all that, there would be this waterproof harp-like material that was made of the thick hide of what's called in, in Scripture the sea cows. Still, we don't know exactly what those animals were, but, but we know this, that in those four layers that no light would have penetrated. It would have, been, it would have been so incredibly dark, just pitch black inside the tabernacle. And if God doesn't provide some sort of light, the priests would have had to go in and do their work in the dark stumbling around over things and tripping here and stubbing their toe here, but God doesn't leave them in the dark. When the lampstand was lit, I want you just to picture this. Inside this four-layered tent, and you go into this room, and, and it's pitch dark, but when this lamp is lit with these seven different lights, the room would just be washed with this golden tone and it would display not only all of the room, all of these things that are, that are made of acacia wood and covered in gold, but also you would see the fabric that makes up the inner layer of the tabernacle. And you would look around and you would see these embroidered cherubim that are all over the walls and ceiling of this place. And it would be a reminder. Immediately you would think, this looks like heaven. You know, these cherubim that are flying all around and what God was doing, just as he was showing earlier with the, the mercy seat and these cherubim there, this earthly picture of a heaven reality, in the same way, when this lampstand is lit, it would have also been this earthly picture of a heavenly reality. That God is enthroned and encircled above his throne are these cherubim and angels who live to, to guard his glory and to worship him forever. This lampstand that God has them made make. It would be this center shaft with three branches that extend out on either side. So there's a center shaft with a light. 
And then there would be three that would come out on this side and three that would come out on this side. It was beaten out of pure gold. It was made from a single talent of solid gold. It was around five feet tall, and the whole thing, historians tell us, weighed somewhere around 75 pounds. So don't think of this little menorah that you sometimes see in, in, uh, in Jewish context. Think of this golden lampstand that is a large piece of furniture here. It was made to resemble a tree. A central trunk with branches, and the branches were covered with buds and blossoms and fruit, which are the three stages of, in the life cycle of a tree. That, and, and normally those don't occur simultaneously in nature, but here... The three life cycles in the stage of, of, of a tree are all happening together. The buds, the blossoms, um, and the fruit are all happening together on this lamp. You say, well, why does it resemble a tree? Why is there going through all the life cycles there and it seems to be producing this life? Because this lampstand is to be a reminder of Eden itself. Do you remember what happened? In the Garden of Eden, uh, the Bible says that in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and also the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says. Well, Adam and Eve were placed in that garden and told they could eat from any tree there except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent came and he tempted them and, and led them astray. When they saw the fruit was, was pleasant to look at, it was going to make them wise, they took of the fruit and they ate of the fruit and they fell from their position of grace. The relationship, the constant fellowship they had with God himself was severed. And they were booted out of the garden, if you will. And at the entrance, at the east of the garden, there were placed these cherubim to guard their way back into what? The tree of life. It's there in the midst of the garden, lest they come back in their fallen state and usher themselves into this permanent fallen state. And here in the tabernacle, as God is, is writing history and, and manipulating history and bringing history to his appointed end, he's reminding them of what was, how he made it, and how one day he would make it again that one day they would be granted access to that tree of life again. It would have been a reminder that God is not only the source of light as they walk in that darkness and light those lamps, but also that He is the source of life. And that without, this, without God, they would, be, they would be left in the dark and they would also then be left in death. This is the golden lampstand. So what do we learn Real practically, and just, just real quickly here for, for a few seconds this morning, what do we learn real practically from these fixtures? Well, number one, we, we've got to be reminded that the tabernacle gives us pictures of these distinct aspects of redemption, that Hebrews 8.5 tells us they serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So when we look at these things, the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, we're not looking at these things that are to be ultimate and, and ends in themselves, but instead they are meant to be pictures, shadows that point us to these other realities of redemption. So here's what we learn. That the mercy seat... For them was the place where the blood was spilled and, and, and it, it 
temporarily, year after year, they had to keep coming back, but temporarily would, would protect them from the judgment that they rightly deserved. Well, our mercy seat, we're not dependent on some, some golden box with a lid with angels on it. Instead, our mercy seat is the atoning work of Jesus himself. It's the cross of Christ. Our mercy seat, the, the, the lid of our box is the cross. You want to know why we make such a big deal of the cross and we talk about Jesus so much? It's because without it, you and I stand condemned. It's at the cross where Jesus, our high priest, carried the blood of His own sacrifice and spilled it there on the terms of the relationship. Be holy, for I am holy. In my everyday walk, I'm not living that out so well. But God looked on me in my helpless state and sent His Son to the cross, and the cross becomes our mercy seat. That's why Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood and, and thus securing an eternal redemption. You and I don't, we don't, we don't look forward to a holiday every year where we get our sins forgiven. It's done. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second application out of this is that our bread of the presence is Jesus Himself. That we must learn that He cares for us. That He knows what we need. That He can be trusted to provide. In John chapter 6, verses 32-35, through 35, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. This is not manna. This is not 12 loaves every week on a table. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst and lastly our, our lampstand is God himself John chapter 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all God has not and will not leave us in the dark in the beginning in Genesis 1 3 God said let there be light and light washed over what we know as the universe. Adam and Eve sinned and plunged their world into spiritual darkness, and God sent the light in the form of His Son. In John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And you and I need to be aware that those who are not in a faith-based relationship with God Himself through Christ alone, 
that they are currently walking in darkness. Sometimes you think, how in the world could people do the things they do and believe the things they do? I mean, man, I've tried to share with them, I've tried to talk to them, and they just won't hear anything. They, just, they seem so, so hateful toward anything about Christianity and the gospel. That's because they're in darkness. They walk in darkness. That's what Psalm 82 verse 5 says. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Jesus warned that one day those who don't trust Him, who reject Him, will be cast into outer darkness. But the Bible says that for those who are children of God, true children of God, through faith in Jesus alone, that one day we will be ushered into His presence, not in a, not in a tent, but when He brings the new heavens and the new earth to be, when He brings heaven to earth. And the Bible tells us there in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, that the city has no need for sun or moon or stars because the glory of God will be its light. God Himself is our lampstand. Aren't you glad this morning that we don't come into a courtyard because we can't come into the room of the holy place because we're not of a certain tribe. This morning, you and I, if you are a blood-bought, spirit-filled believer and follower of Jesus, you have direct access to God. And God provides for us all these things in Himself. When God provides our needs, He is teaching us that He is all we need. So, in closing, as we close this out, and we'll come back to these other things next week, let me just remind you that the entire section that we are in in Exodus, I've subtitled it, Rescued to Worship. Let these things, let these shadows and copies of these things that point to this reality of redemption in, in God and in Christ, let them cause you to worship. Whether your team wins or loses, whether the people at school notice you or not, whether you get the raise or you don't, whether your candidate wins the White House or not, or even you don't have a candidate. I don't know. That's where a lot of us are. We're, we're called to look beyond our circumstances and see that God's on His throne, that He's worthy to be worshipped, that He's always been on His throne. We see that from the fact that he's been directing history from thousands of years ago pointing to the reality of his son and pointing to a future reality of heaven. Let it cause you to worship because you know that he's on his throne. He always has been on his throne and he always will be on his throne. And through his son, he invites us to gather around that throne and worship at his feet. Aren't you glad for the hope of the gospel. Let's pray together. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.